This is tax update, show 5.5, kind of an interim special one, done on July 18, 2005. Today's presentation will deal with the release of the decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the long-awaited decision in Strangey Number 2, the second appeal on the Strangey case coming forward, one that's been awaited in the estate planning area for quite a while. What we're going to discuss is the initial reaction we have to that case. Links to the case to the opinion will be posted on the on the blog that we use for this purpose. That will be found at ezollers.libsyn.com uh, and also will be found on the Fifth Circus website. We also will, once I look it up, post the link to the original to the second tax court decision issued by Judge Cohen on the case. That tax court decision was issued back in 2003, and that particular case was Tax Court Memorandum 2003-145, filed on May 20th of 2003. That case was appealed. A little bit of history of the Strangey decision so you can remember how this worked. The original Strangey case, the IRS challenged a family limited partnership formed by Mr. Strangey prior to his death. Albert Strangey's family limited partnership was challenged by the IRS on a number of grounds. Now, the original Strangey case, which still exists as a reported tax court decision, basically rejected all of the IRS's position for ignoring the family limited partnership aside from the attack under Section 2036. The tax court sidestepped the 2036 position by claiming the IRS had essentially raised the issue too late in the game and they weren't going to decide it. So, in one sense, the original strategy decision was a good news decision for family limited partnerships. Basically, it wiped out all the IRS attacks except for 2036. On appeal, the Fifth Circuit basically sustained the tax court's position on those other positions, so that's good news for family limited partnerships. But it said it did not agree that the case, the issue on 2036, had been raised too late in the game. And for that reason, it sent the case back down to the tax court for further, for further study for allowing the 2036 argument to be raised under 2036A. So the tax case was sent back down to the tax court. The tax court reissued their opinion, this time as a memorandum decision with Judge Cohen writing the opinion. It was her case. And the memorandum decision covered only the 2036A 1 and 2 positions. Now, a couple of key issues to remember. We have a reported decision in the first case. We have a memorandum in the second. Theoretically, of course, a memorandum deals with already settled areas of law, though some would dispute one part of Judge Cohen's decision was settled and the reason why we were so interested in the appeal. And the second case is it's not necessarily binding on the tax court, while the original strategy decision is supposedly binding in future cases on the tax court. And the Fifth Circuit had approved, so therefore it appears to be good in the Fifth as well, without regard. So we had kind of the good news, now we have the memo decision, bad news decision. The memo case went back, and Strangey had very, very bad facts in terms of how they had run the partnership. To be honest, it had a lot of cases that suggested that a lot of problems that existed in Mr. Strangey's case, you can read the facts of the case and discover them. 
But what we have, 2036 has two provisions that basically 2036 reads, and this comes for 2036A, which is where the attacks come from states, the value of the gross estate shall include the value of all property to the extent of any interest therein which a decedent has at any time made a transfer, except in the case of a bona fide sale for adequate and full consideration in money or money's worth, by trust or otherwise under which he has retained for his life or for any period not ascertainable without reference to his death, or for any period that does not in fact end before his death. And now we go to two conditions. Number one, the possession or enjoyment of or the right to the income from the property. That's 2031A1. Or two, the right either alone or in conjunction with any person to designate the persons who shall possess or enjoy the property or the income therefrom. Now those are the two issues. 2036A1 has existed as been a case going all the way back to the Showerhammer case, that the IRS has successfully been able to force inclusion of assets in a family limited partnership in an attack in the estate of the seed. And that's kind of what I call the sloppy estate or the sloppy flip a problem. That is, we have this wonderful document, but in reality, they don't pay any attention to that document. The tax court and the other court and other courts have basically decided in that case, there is an implied agreement that dad has the use of the property or dad and mom have the use of the property for life. Therefore, the court concludes there was a life estate retained. Therefore, it's includable in mom or dad's estate when they pass away. We have a whole slew of cases under 2036A1. And I think most of us looking at the Strangey facts felt that if the tax court decided 2036A1, the Strangey estate was going to lose. And in fact, in Judge Cohen's decision, they lost hands down on 2036A1. That wasn't the problem. The problem was Judge Cohen felt constrained to move beyond that to number two which was the right either alone or in conjunction with any person to designate the persons who shall possess or enjoy the property or the income therefrom. Now, if you think about that, the way family owned partnerships have tended to be marketed to clients and clients are told that in a family owned partnership, oh, you keep control. Well, A2 seems to suggest if you keep control, then it's in your estate. Not a good result. Well, why hasn't that been a problem? It hasn't been a problem because of a 1972 case, United States versus Byram. That case is 401 U.S. 125, a Supreme Court case, or 72-2 USTC paragraph 12,859, for those of you who have the CCH volumes available. And that particular case held that because it was a fiduciary duty on the part of Byram in this case, to the other partners, that served as a constraint, so he did not have the unfettered right to make changes. He could not basically direct control the assets of the partnership, but had to concern himself with the other partners. And that has been the backstop of the defense, saying that A2 didn't matter, because there was always a fiduciary duty to the other to the other partners, even if those partners had no direct rights and dad effectively controlled it, it was dad still had to had his fiduciary duty that served as a break on him. Judge Cohen in Strangey 2, apparently not satisfied with uh, including it in the estate under 2036A1, turned around and said under 2036A2 that the Byram case only applied 
if there was in fact a reasonable reason to believe that there were partners who weren't in on the deal, who in fact were not making an implied agreement to waive fiduciary duty. And if you read Judge Cohen's opinion, you continue on where Judge Cohen even admits that, oh, well, this is in addition because we've already decided this, but we're going to keep going because we think it would fail under this too, goes on and states, basically, if there's not that conflict of interest, if there's or not conflict of interest, if there's not somebody who truly a fiduciary obligation exists for, then in fact, it does not count and Byram doesn't work. That was the major problem in Strangey. If Byram doesn't work, most family limited partnerships now appear to have a problem unless they include a benefit, unless they include a partner who is outside the family. Therefore, unless they include a charitable partner or some other unrelated partner who could be reasonably expected to enforce their fiduciary duty, enforce fiduciary duties back on dad, we have a problem. It's in dad's estate or it's in mom's estate. The Fifth Circuit received the appeal of Strangey. This has been a long-awaited appeal. Everybody was aware it would go back up. The Strangey family appealed. The Fifth Circuit today sustained the tax court. But what is very important is how they sustained the tax court. The Fifth Circuit's opinion that was released today sustains the tax court on the 2036A1 analysis. That's important because the A1 analysis was the one that nobody was really, I think nobody maybe except those who were appealing the case, I'm sure they felt they had a shot, but most everyone else felt that essentially the, the there was not going to be much chance of the Strangey case winning on its facts. The facts were just bad for this purpose. But what the tax court, but the Fifth Circuit specifically did not address the A2 concept. In fact, in footnote 7, the Fifth Circuit notes, because we hold the transferred assets were properly includable in the taxable estate under Section 2036A1, we do not release, we do not reach, I should say, the commissioner's alternative contention that Strangey retained the right to designate the persons who shall possess or enjoy the property, thus triggering inclusions under 2036A2. We don't have a decision as to whether Judge Cohen's analysis on 2036A2 is correct or not. The Fifth Circuit did not say one way or the other. Where does that put us? Most of the commentary that has been posted so far on discussion groups on the ABA probate trust probate and trust law discussion group on ABA tax and over on the California Society's tax talk group has gone around the idea that maybe nothing changed. That in fact, because 2036A2 was not decided, we are about in the same position we were 24 hours ago on this issue. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a special issue for CPAs. 2036A1 is important. You shouldn't celebrate too much that basically flips weren't killed by this because A1 presents real problems for family limited partnerships and presents real problems for CPAs. Let's think about the traditional structure we have of the family limited partnership. 
individual and spouse, assuming a married couple, go and do their estate plan. A family limited partnership may be drawn up as part of that plan and funded and all the details are put together. But what happens on an annual basis generally is the attorney is not going to be necessarily involved seeing the nuts and bolts. But what has happened in the A1 cases has been that the accountant, almost inevitably, the accountant has been making journal entries to fix the fact that mom and dad have been taking distributions they shouldn't have, have taken funds from the partnership or, oops, forgot to put money in partnership's name or didn't retitle things. So the accountant has been journal entering his way into getting this thing to work. In the Strangey case, we had journal entries coming on. After Mr. Strangey passed away, we were still fixing things is what it looked like in the case. The CPA's journal entries then become the key issue because those are shown to prove that, in fact, they weren't paying attention to it and it was just being forced to work at the end of the year. The attorney that drafted the document may never be aware of this, but the CPA doing the 1065 almost always is. CPAs who work with family limited partnerships need to be aware of the need to pay close attention to whether the partners are following the partnership agreement. Therefore, even though normally you, you wish to have the partnership agreement before you do a partnership return, in fact, it's arguably virtually impossible to do a partnership tax return without the partnership agreement, in this case, it is extremely important to have and to have a very good idea of how the partnership agreement operates if this entity is to work for its intended transfer tax purpose. As well, CPAs must warn clients who are not following the agreement that the failure to follow the agreement puts the whole plan in jeopardy. We know you lose on this point. You may lose on 2036A2, and I think we have to counsel any client looking at getting into such a plan today that 2036A2 is a potential problem, but we know you lose on 2036A1. If you don't follow the plan, if you ignore it, if you commingle assets, if we have to do major journal entries at year end to fix things, we know the family limited partnership will not work. That much is simple. And the CPA will be in possession of this fact. That exposes you to risk. As an accountant, CPA, or EA dealing with this, you have to step up and tell people they need to follow this and you need to warn your clients, preferably in writing about the importance of following the documents. You also need to raise the red flag if it becomes apparent a client is not following the document because the heirs will probably hold the CPA responsible if, in fact, the IRS challenges this and wins, and they will claim that mom and dad would have done it correctly if the CPA had just done his job. As well, if clients are considering family-limited partnerships, I think it becomes important to consider whether they are temperamentally suited to have them. Two key issues here. First, the client has to be willing to incur the annual fees involved for doing the partnership correctly. That means, since after the fact fixing basically doesn't work, normally the CPA will have to be involved during the year. Looking at entries, the client has to be willing to consult the CPA and potentially then the CPA bring in the attorney for any significant transaction in the partnership. We need to keep things up. That is not cheap. You need somebody skilled looking at it. You can't get by on the cheap doing the books on a family limited partnership. 
Secondly, the client has to be temperamentally able to handle taking instructions and following them. If the client believes that this is my money and I can do with it what I want and I'm not going to pay attention to anybody because it's mine, that is basically the whole case against the thing working. If the client is not one to follow instructions, either is one to insist on doing what he wants with the money or a client who simply just does not follow instructions or has trouble following them, you need to seriously consider whether this client is appropriate for a family limited partnership. Now, I do not claim to be the world's greatest expert on 2036 or family limited partnerships, but I thought I would offer up some initial ideas. I look forward to comments to be received on this broadcast. You can post them on the blog site or you can post them uh, on one of the discussion groups that we mentioned. Again, this will be found at ezollers.libsyn.com, and I will post links to both the tax court memorandum case that was reviewed today as well as the Fifth Circuit opinion on that site. So go back there to look at it, and I look forward to discussion on this point. Again, this broadcast especially is intended for tax professionals who can do their independent research, and I do strongly recommend you read the decisions in this case before doing anything with regard to family limited partnerships, and is not intended for those who are not skilled in doing so. As well, this broadcast can be redistributed as long as no fee is charged for the distribution and the source is attributed, is attributed correctly. This has been Tax Update, the special 5.5 edition, for July 18th, 2005.